Unity Lab started as a means to take catastrophes and reimagine how we might let no crisis go unutilized. Welcome to Tete Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Rose Wilkowski, and this week we have the great opportunity to speak with our next visiting lecturer, Dana Cuff. She'll be here at Rice the evening of March 4th, so mark your calendars. Dana is a professor at the School of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. She's also the co-founder and director of City Lab, which is a think tank within the department that focuses research on contemporary urban issues and the sustainable growth of cities. Without further ado, Dana, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, Rose. It's my pleasure. Your first publication and all the research that went into it focused on studying the practice of architecture. But I'd like to go even further back and begin with your own education. You received a BA in design and psychology from UC Santa Cruz, but then went on to obtain a PhD in architecture from Berkeley. Did this unique combination of interests sort of evolve over time, or were they all equally of constant interest to you? Well, it's kind of ancient history, but it also, I think, applies to the way I still think about things. So maybe there's more consistency in a person's life than one might imagine. I started actually studying psychology and painting and realized that I was interested in both and there weren't many ways to combine them. I thought, well, all right, I could go to school in graphic design. That seemed like one way to put the two together. And the other was architecture. And I had actually a cognitive psychology professor which was the part of psychology that I was studying, who was really in the early days of environmental design research. And she got me started really thinking about architecture as the kind of field that would blend interest in art, psychology, sociology. I ended up doing a senior thesis about mapping and perception of buildings. And that kind of got me started. So When I got accepted to various types of graduate schools, I basically went to the program that I thought would be most open to a really broad way of looking at our everyday lives in the built environment. And that turned out to be a PhD program in architecture. And it was a really good choice for me. I've been able to do all the things I've wanted to do ever since. That's a really interesting a little bit of history there, I think. Yes, I'm better at those kinds of projects that require a kind of polymath mm-hmm. and expertise in a few areas. That's mm-hmm. my skill, I think, is pulling disparate materials together. And I think that's basically what architecture has to do all the time. Just touching back on something you mentioned about architecture being a very broad way to blend all of these interests, I see how that is very prevalent in academia, but it also raises the question of this difference between academia and practice, and maybe practice is more of that pragmatic, being uh, almost an expert in a few things Mm -hmm. versus a very broad blend type of research, and how sometimes these can be at odds with one another, with academia often prioritizing the theoretical and practice, as we mentioned, prioritizing sort of real-world applications. Uh, How do you think that these two approaches can come together and kind of help the profession move forward that kind of incorporates the best of both worlds? It was an observation in graduate school that started me really thinking and doing research about the relationship between theory and practice in architecture. 
I'm always skeptical of the dualities model of the world. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure it can't work that way, but then you have to set about discovering why that's the popular formation of it. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I wrote a dissertation about the kind of psychology and sociology of practice, right? Actually, it's more like mm-hmm. anthropology and all of the social science work that I've done really is best characterized as cultural studies now. But even then, it seemed to me academia could do a better job at trying to prepare architects to be particularly good agents in their field, meaning that by separating the two, we were actually disempowering students and architects. So that idea that we would see school one way and practice another has been the focus of, well, I would say all my work ever since. Like, what Mm -hmm. are the ways in which the two can come together? So it comes together really directly in architecture school and studio, right? Where you do projects that are somehow parallel to the projects that architects do in practice. And those are more and less conceptual, but I actually think taking advantage of the conceptual opportunities in school that may not always be available in practice is perfect training for thinking through how to guide your own architectural career. Maybe we don't exactly talk about it like that while we're in studio, but you know, if you can in studio figure out your own path and how to guide a design project, even while you might have a studio instructor who's got very definite ideas of their own, and use those also as resources, it is actually very good preparation for thinking about working in the office, whether you're working with Mm -hmm. clients or other people that are above you in the hierarchy of the firm or whatever. Studying architectural history and architectural theory are really the ways we become conscious of our actions in architecture. It's not just some kind of immediate understanding of creativity or something like that, but Mm -hmm. it's actually a real scholarly and intellectual project as well as a creative and maker's project. And in some ways, to me, that's the beauty of architecture. There aren't very many other disciplines in the university where being an intellectual and a theoretician has direct relationship to the making of things. You know, in medicine, theory isn't as important, you might say, as science or practices or precedence, even like in law, precedence might be the most important thing. But architecture Mm -hmm. has this dimension that really comes from its relationship to the arts that gives us a grounding in theory. I think even as I'm going through school and, and my master's, There are moments where I very much fall in line with certain approaches that professors take to accomplish what you're describing of preparing you in a studio to guide your own practice or project in the future. Was there ever a moment in your uh, education where you thought to yourself, here's a professor that I need to mimic or an approach that they taught you or that you recognized that they were using that you've then really grabbed onto and use now in your own teaching? Well... I think there was a set of experiences that I had in graduate school that set me on the direction I'm still working in. I did partly a studio degree and then went on to do a PhD. That's the way the doctoral program was structured at Berkeley. And at the end of, I think, a year and a half of studio work, I got involved in a project that had a sociologist 
and two architects working on it, which was a practical project that was a research undertaking. But it was this strange project of moving a mental health institution onto a defunct shopping mall that was open air and early Victor Gruen uh, shopping mall. And it was such a bizarre idea and required this really interesting programming and institutional investigation and then architectural and urban solution that I realized that that was exactly the kind of work I wanted to keep doing. It wasn't conventional architecture per se. We actually needed an architectural team to follow with us, but it also wasn't like a relay race, you know, where some social scientists did some study and then they handed the report over to somebody else who did a master plan and then they handed that over to someone else who did the architecture. It was really Mm -hmm. a more integrated process and it seemed like it needed to be. And we each needed to know about each other's disciplines to do it well. It doesn't mean that all architecture has to happen that way, but it seemed to me that socially significant projects might have to be that way. And those were the ones that interested me most. That rolls into my next question here. Talking about this multi-dimensional role within a project, we found that on the faculty page at UCLA, you're described as a teacher, scholar, practitioner, and activist. We often find many people within academia Uh described as teacher, scholar, practitioner. However, the activist portion is fairly interesting. So how have you woven activism with these other facets of your career? Well, I think that actually started in Houston. You know, I taught at Rice for three years, a long time Mm -hmm. ago when I was first starting my academic career, right after I finished my doctorate. And I got wrapped up in the Allen Parkway Village public housing debate and started working for the tenants organization there with the late Lenwood Johnson, who was president of the Allen Parkway Village Residence Council, and realized that something like public housing, which was an amazing part of American history and such a small part compared to other developed countries in the world, mm-hmm. that really Really, the architect had a hand in federal projects with that, socially significant federal projects through public housing. And we were going to tear down in Houston perfectly serviceable public housing development. It was actually in a beautiful grounds that just had been very poorly maintained intentionally. So, mm-hmm. and the history of that and the politics of that were extreme. I think mm-hmm. I did start into it naively. And actually that stayed a project for me for long after I left Houston. That early activism related to thinking about public housing, the African-American community in Houston, tenants' rights, Mm -hmm. residents' rights, how architecture fed into that and actually was really a bulwark against a kind of discrimination and urban segregation was super interesting to me. And that started my next book, which ended up being about public housing in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that really that there would be a way for someone in architectural academia to generate their own projects. And if you could Mm -hmm. do that, it would be a form of activism that instead of the kind of standard format for architectural practice, which Mary McLeod described well in her essays about architecture in the Reagan era, that we wait for clients with capital and basically mm-hmm. end up at that service. Instead, if you had an academic post, you could generate projects that couldn't be done in practice that would then explore issues relevant to the city, explore issues really relevant to our profession, and create a new form of agency that could be extremely powerful. So that's what I started doing with my Mm -hmm. partner, 
Roger Sherman, who co-founded CityLab with me back in 2006. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we generated all our own work. It wasn't a community design center where people would come to us and say, we need help. Those are really important. It just wasn't what CityLab was about. It was really to start a series of activist architectural projects that might produce new channels for architectural work that were hard to produce in conventional forms of practice. Well, since you bring up City Lab, I think that uh, leads us into our next portion of the questions. What I read was that City Lab was established in 2006, and so maybe we can start with the beginning years and how the financial crisis affected the trajectory of the organization, or if you felt like you needed to react to the crisis or the economic collapse. The origin story of City Lab really starts a couple of years before the financial collapse. And it really began with Hurricane Katrina when we watched the new urbanists go down to the Gulf and generate one mile of urbanism per new urbanist clothing Kroger's and Walmarts in some kind of Gulf style architecture. I realized that we just as a profession, we're not very well equipped to deal with some of the most critical needs in our field. And one of the things that struck me was, even if you thought postmodernism was a fine style for Walmart in Biloxi, it didn't happen because the politics of the region in recovery were so predominant that building permits were issued, corruption pertained, people didn't have a place to live, so they rebuilt as quickly as possible. And we didn't have ways of dealing with that. There were no contingency plans built into the way we practice. So that's City Lab started as a means to take these catastrophes and reimagine how we might uh, let no crisis go on, um, you know, unutilized. Uh, I think that was a kind of naive starting point, but it was not long after that that we had this housing crisis, and that also uh, was a kind of tipping point for CityLab when we started really thinking about the economies of the domestic landscape and how architecture and economics might work together. The ensuing project that's the OR project of City Lab is the Backyard Homes Project, which really was a long game. <laughs> 10 years mm-hmm. of work and research around accessory dwelling units that was a way to take what had been happening in communities all over the Southwest, really, including Houston, where people have secondary units as part of a way of supporting their mortgages, for instance, or supporting their elderly parents or whatever extended family they might have, and making that into both an architectural and an urban and a policy design. We had a lot of luck during the recession in some ways because uh, since people Mm -hmm. didn't have work, lots of people came to City Lab to uh, work on ideas during that time, as in prior Mm -hmm. recessions. It was a good place to collect good thinking from lawyers and planners and architects to community activists and politicians. So it's always functioned as this clearinghouse for imagining futures Mm -hmm. that might not be thought of as possible without that kind of conversation and set of design proposals. 
Uh, you, you mentioned there the sort of challenges or circumstances that come with shooting long-term projects. Mm-hmm. Can you expound upon the challenges of implementation or maybe what your metric for measuring yeah. success or opportunities are? Uh, sometimes I think about this desert tortoise that my grandfather had. It was named Maccabee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a desert tortoise lives to be 150 years old. And when my grandfather got it, I don't think he was thinking that I was going to end up having to deal with it. But in fact, it was mine, you know, for a while. And Mm -hmm. it's that kind of like caretaking of projects Mm -hmm. for many, many years that is a new way of thinking about projects. They're more like desert tortoises than bunnies. So how you think through the handing off the lifespan how little projects are kind of tactical in a bigger game. It's hard to do Mm -hmm. that in an architectural office, but in the kind of innovative practices like City Lab or others that have a different model, you can kind of think of them that way. I also work to such a great extent with students and their lifespan is more like bunnies. You know, they're three years and they're gone. Mm -hmm. So um, you really have to think about ways to weave in continuity through these kind of long-term projects now, especially when a house can take five years. A Mm -hmm. college dorm or a campus or an affordable housing policy can easily be a 10-year project. It's really easy to both lose your focus and enthusiasm over that amount of time. So since you bring up students and that very short lifespan that you get to be involved in their life and education or career, how do you structure their involvement within City Lab and its initiatives? Well, we've done it in a few ways. Probably the most intense way is that we always have about eight to 10 graduate students working with us as graduate research Mm -hmm. associates at any point in time. So the City Lab offices are thrumming with graduate student projects that we've initiated that they're working on with us. And we do those things collectively. And they're graduate students, mostly from architecture, but also from planning and also from other disciplines. I also teach a regular required course called the Program in Theory and Practice. And Usually the project we take on in that class is exactly what we've been talking about, theory practice overlap, where we look at the cultural foundations of architecture and architects Mm -hmm. as well as clients, and then try to expose the nuances of that through a real project, like an affordable housing project that's something that's ongoing in City Lab, and we do work in the class that couldn't be done otherwise. needs like a big group of students who are really thinking outside the box to study it. And then I run a Mellon-funded program called the Urban Humanities Initiative, where students get a graduate certificate in urban humanities, and it brings humanists, planners, and architects together to study for a year on Pacific Rim megacities, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Shanghai, and Mexico City. And we really learn to collaborate and think what it might mean to do creative humanist interventions in collaboration with partners in those other cities. So it's Mm -hmm. become a real rhizomatic effort on my part and that of my colleagues to try various ways in which students and projects and theory and practice can be brought together to train the next generation of architects. I'm intrigued by this idea of constructing clients, and I think you actually mentioned it a few questions back as well, but I imagine that's something that you bring into these different programs within City Lab or for the students. Can you expound a little bit on how you go about constructing the right clients? 
constructing clients is kind of a fine line. I mean, there's a way in which uh, you might look at constructing the client as a patronizing or egotistical project amongst architects. Like architects have historically said, oh, yes, we must educate our clients in order to deliver the best architecture that's available. That's not exactly what I think. I think really it's a matter of constructing the audience for a certain kind of conversation in which architecture is the lever. You know, homelessness is a huge issue here in Houston, across the country. Architecture thus far has not been able to leverage a way forward, in my mind. How many shopping carts turned into mobile sleeping pods can we invent before it's really a joke? On the other hand, something like the secondary units really seemed like it was a matter of envisioning how secondary units would operate, say at the neighborhood scale, that allowed a conversation about doubling the density of the suburbs that couldn't happen Mm -hmm. without architecture. I'm always looking for ways that our agency as architects is expanded Mm -hmm. and really taken as the opportunity so that we contribute at our full creative and intellectual potential means we have to find the right audiences and situations in which we can move the dial forward in the city. When people can't picture a new possibility and when, you know, we solve that problem in a new way, I feel like we're constructing a new body of clients and it's through architecture that we're capable of making that open future apparent to people. I guess it's sparking my own thoughts on the successful strategies of, I guess, presenting these new possibilities to, you know, all of the powers that be that control a lot of these fa- these different factors that go into projects like this, especially when it's uh, dealing with some, you know, government, government uh, property or public school, or um, even here in Houston, where we, ha- we, we, where we deal with permitting restraints on, even the backyard dwelling units um, in terms of size and quantity. So, you know, that's a perfect example. You know, you, you don't change. When you find you're meeting those kinds of constraints as a single typical project, you just throw up your hands and go work somewhere mm-hmm. else, right? It's just not worth the conventional practices approach to something like that. But when you're operating like City Lab does, basically we've been tinkering with policy for eight years by making different proposals, studying different neighborhoods, showing that this has already happened. As many as 60% of the lots already had uh, secondary units in some neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Then we set, worked with lenders. Then we worked with um, community neighborhood associations. And eventually, we became the accessory dwelling unit go-to shop. And when Mm -hmm. housing became a crisis across the state, we worked in the city of Los Angeles for, oh, five years trying to get the city council to make the changes to the policy that would allow it. It could have happened at the city scale, but they couldn't do it because of the neighbor who would be super vocal and politically influential that would stop everyone else from being able to get legal secondary units. So, uh, you know, I started working with the state assemblyman from our district and co-authored state policy, which we then collaborated with our colleagues in the northern part of California who were doing the same thing. And we wrote a policy that changed the entire state uh, law about 
every single family dwelling, of which there are 8 million, could now have a secondary unit in California. So that's the, you know, like test of this long game. And, you know, and also it's not just a policy matter. I think that's the part that I always try to communicate to my architecture students and colleagues is that really without architecture and architectural experimentation, we would have never captured the imaginations of the various parties that needed to be collaborating on it, nor would we have known Mm -hmm. what the actual nature of the problem was. And so it Mm -hmm. took architects and planners and politicians working together. Seems kind of miraculous when I look back, although we're still working with that same coalition of people to try new policies and new architectural experiments. So that's similarly in in our own uh, curriculum here you know we have our our construct course or it used to be called rice building workshop where we uh-huh. we've had to cross many of the same bridges that you've touched on right now um in terms of exploiting the possibilities of of backyard dwelling units or ancillary dwelling units and i and you know we we've discussed a little bit of kind of the uh, maybe political factors that go into implementing that strategy but um, as you as you are well well aware of uh, the difference you've been in Houston or worked in Houston, there are probably some fairly different, specifically environmental contextual prompts oh, yeah. that differ between Houston and Los Angeles. Of course, here there's always the the flooding issue that's come to light, or has always been there, but has definitely been a a huge issue for us in the last few years. Right. So I'm curious of what are maybe some of the environmental or more social factors that you deal yeah. with in LA. Uh, you know, one of City Lab's initiatives has been rethinking green, which now seems kind of outdated mm-hmm. as a term. I really don't think we can do politically significant work in architecture or world-changing work without thinking about environmental issues anymore. And the kind of work that we've done at City Lab about that has been much more scattered than focused, I would say, until now. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of issues we deal with in Southern California are also water-related, but it's a shortage of it, not a influx of it. So, you know, we're always thinking about uh, water issues here. We also generally think a lot about greenhouse gases and carbon because... Like Houston, this is a big, sprawling Mm -hmm. city dominated by the car. And also like Houston, we're getting pieces of a transit infrastructure, which is for us a kind of cultural change. I mean, we actually have a downtown that's habitable now, which I was hoping I would see during my lifetime, but I didn't really expect it. So that's been amazing. And, you know, the idea that we could build more densely then in order to turn Los Angeles's DNA into something that's more cosmopolitan is a big effort on my part and on City Lab's part, which really is to change the narrative about Los Angeles really fundamentally or changing the imaginary that has long guided Los Angeles as being the city of sprawl and of the single family dwelling. That, that just can't be the future here environmentally. Socially, I mean, it's so unaffordable because of that. We don't have many levers, but the ones that we do have are really architectural. For instance, to demonstrate that density and quality of life go together, like a better city is a better place to live. Yeah, it's such an amazing point when you uh, made the contrast in in, uh, between Houston and Los Angeles, and Houston obviously having an influx of water, and LA having a shortage of water. But right, but immediately something that pops into my mind is that I imagine that the solutions or architectural solutions are remarkably fairly similar. You know, in Houston, we talk about capturing all the rainwater 
um, and potentially reusing it in order to, to, to keep it from, from flooding the streets or going into the bayou. And similarly in Los Angeles, I can imagine that, or in, in any area with a shortage of water or drought, that you would also be trying to capture rainwater to reuse and recycle. That's um, exactly even though, right. What you just described about the bayou is what we talk about with the LA River. It, it, you're exactly right. It's a really good observation on your part. Uh, so speaking of this rethinking green um, idea, and I know that's one of the sort of uh, main initiatives of the lab, of the of city lab, um, but also post-suburbanism and spatial just, justice, new infrastructure and urban sensing. Are these mm-hmm. factors more of a spectrum that you are constantly incorporating into every idea or, is it, or are they sort of individual thoughts or processes that you sort of tackle one by one? I think when we laid them out initially, I thought it would be the way by which we would evaluate the infinite number of ideas that we might generate to say, what's the focus of the projects we'll initiate? Mm -hmm. But it turned out to be more overlapping, and some of them seem to never go away. (laughs) So the post-suburban city has really been a kind of focus. We don't do all our work in Los Angeles, but when we do work in other places, we often use Los Angeles as a kind of litmus test or translation so that we see that the work is... uh, scalable or can be generalized. So, you know, we work in Mexico City, which is also a giant sprawling city, but Mm -hmm. Los Angeles and Mexico City have interesting similarities and some differences, of course. So the post-suburban city has been a really key issue, and that's almost always tied to rethinking green. And in the end, it's Mm -hmm. really always tied for me and for City Lab to spatial justice, to questions of equity and inclusion. The other ones, um, urban sensing really arose out of my early interest in a kind of hyper version of smart cities. I was on the computer science faculty for a while, working with the Center for Embedded Network Sensing to try to figure out how sensors and actuators might transform daily life. You know, now a lot of that's actually happening in the form of autonomous vehicles or, you know, other kinds of mobile devices. And there are other centers now, I think, that do that better than us probably Lev Manovich's center or various centers at MIT. The fourth one, which was like, oh, new infrastructures. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's still a kind of focus for us because in part, no one owns infrastructure. And it seemed Mm -hmm. to me that's the kind of space where City Lab would do well to bring people together to think about. So riverways or the waterways like the Bayou or the LA River, it's kind of in the hands of engineers and politicians, neither of whom really have a sense of what that might contribute back to making the city a better place to live. So, you know, whether that's freeways, I mean, like Houston, Los Angeles is plagued with or blessed with, depending on your perspective, a really extensive (laughs) network of freeways. And who thinks about that in terms of urban life, urban design, physical environment, environmental issues? Pretty much nobody except for transportation planners who are not Mm -hmm. very sympathetic to those transportation planners who might be listening to (laughs) the fact that the transportation network really needs to be designed with the city in mind, not just with mobility. So, you know, I think there's a big gap there and that's what the new infrastructures was meant to solve. Mm -hmm. We did a long series of projects on the high-speed rail network, um, hopefully emerging here 
So that's another kind of classic city lab project that was related to infrastructure, where mm -hmm. we started working at the state level and then at, in collaboration with local station area cities to try to figure out how the coming of the high-speed rail might benefit the quality of life in the station cities. You know, the standard approach, which mm -hmm. is likely to still happen, though not without five years of research and lots of interesting design examples from us, to be a station plunked in a place like El Paso, for instance, with mm -hmm. a giant parking lot around it and, uh, you know, 100, 100 feet on either side of the tracks path fenced off because it's dangerous. And that'll just whiz through town, knocking down whatever is in the way and making it so that the station is not at all connected to the city, doesn't predict the urban growth that it will generate and relies mm -hmm. as much on today's automobile transportation as we mm -hmm. do today in spite of the fact that it's supposed to be there in 50 years. So we came up with all kinds of different ways to think through how you might imagine a future for those station cities that would be very different than that. So for instance, there were some cities that were definitely going to be destinations for work and some cities that would be more likely to be residential or bedroom cities. And so they uh, became kind of like twin cities, twin stations, and that you might think mm -hmm. of them as actually one space if you were imagining that future. And what would it mean to have one city that was divided by mm -hmm. 400 miles or 100 miles. Could you make the link on that train something that was, say, part of children's education? Or, you know, would there be cars that would be part of that transit gap? Or would there be certain services that would be naturally needed at each station based on the fact that one was more oriented towards work and one was more oriented towards housing? So, you know, that and a lot of other things, uh, besides just trying to keep the parking lots at least to one side so that the city could grow up to the station on the other side as being the simplest aspect mm -hmm. of that. I mean, we also then took particular cities. Uh, and here, Roger Sherman was really one of the creative forces behind the thinking, um, like Anaheim which has Disneyland in it and the Angel Stadium. And we tried to imagine how Disneyland might actually be part of the station, that you would actually enter Disneyland or enter Angel Stadium from the station itself, kind of like Heathrow works for some of the metro stations in London, the tube stations, so mm -hmm. that you actually board the Disneyland tram from the station area and avoid the parking and uh, separation of uses that are part of the modern city, like, you know, hotels here, entertainment here, mobility there. Mm -hmm. And we showed how, you know, the sort of early stages of parking lots might end up evolving into a parking uh, scaffold with an urban spine, you know, not something that people had thought was possible. And it was a really interesting design uh, set of design proposals. We'll see, you know, the whole project in the state got slowed down. So it's, again, the desert tortoise problem. And I think the work will still be relevant as it evolves, but the politics of that are much more focused on just financing than on the station cities at the moment. With each of these 
facets of, of the city lab, a lot of parallels or similar situations occurring, um, obviously, from what you're describing in California, but with Texas. And mm -hmm. do you think that that is, has a lot to do with sort of overall population of the state or this idea of multiple metropolitan areas within a certain proximity to each other, even though as I'm different environmental factors that the states are, are struggling with. But do you see parallels uh, between those two? Yeah, absolutely. I think if we threw in Phoenix, we might uh, say it mm -hmm. also had some similarities and maybe Albuquerque. You know, the Southwest, environmentally, socially, to some extent politically, certainly the history of urban formation there, so the dominance of sprawling landscapes and a desert in which that sprawl is happening. All of that unites us. I, I really think our connection to the Mexican border also unites us. Mm -hmm. or maybe you'd say our once having been Mexico unites us. I think that's a really great part of our connectivity and history and something that affects the way we should be thinking about architecture and urbanism as we move forward in the next couple mm -hmm. of generations. So uh, maybe I want to zoom out a little bit here and just kind of look back at, at this two sort of sides we've discussed of your of your academic career or your um, your teaching career and this the uh, endeavors of city lab and I guess if you can give some insight on what it's like working at UCLA in these two different capacities and um, I imagine there's a lot of meaningful crossover between the two sort of roles that you're playing is that what you found in your in your practice yeah I think of my practice as being both that of an academic and of unconventional architect. So those both mm -hmm. seem like practices to me. In one of them, I'm more likely to write books and articles and communicate ideas like that and you know, give lectures and go to symposia. And on the other side, mm -hmm. I'm really working to do demonstration projects. That mm -hmm. another form of argumentation for me. And so it takes a set of ideas, the same kinds of ideas that I'm really working on in my academic practice and studies them and communicates them in a different way. It's funny, I think we've often thought that the architectural thesis was a pretty ill-defined animal. When students finish their architectural studies and they do a thesis, uh, the conversation at the final jury is often about, well, is this really a thesis and what would make it a thesis? And is this really research or is it just a site project? And that same set of questions is what I respond to through this other form of argumentation and practice, which is more the urban and architectural practice of City Lab where really every project is expected to be a prototype, not a solution. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's really time for me to write the City Lab book. I think I need to come back around mm -hmm. and put into words an illustrated text instead of projects that have annotations. And, mm -hmm. you know, back and forth between those two modes of production. I think there are other practices working like that around the world. I'm not the only one by any means. And even within more conventional practices, there have been, you know, more research-oriented pieces to what they do. A lot of those mm -hmm. people collaborate with us in one way or another, at least in the Los Angeles area. 
I'm actually intrigued to kind of, if you're willing to, to share, um, you mentioned collaboration with firms or practices yeah. in, in Los Angeles. Right. Um, can you give some insight onto who you've collaborated with um, oh, sure. or sort of significant projects that have come out of that? Yes, we've collaborated with, um, outside the university, with Jet Propulsion Labs and with mm-hmm. Gensler Architects and with mm-hmm. the East LA Community Design Center and Self-Help Graphics, I mean, lots of community organizations. And then within UCLA, just within our architecture faculty, you know, we've worked with Neil Denari and Kevin Daly, who's a mm-hmm. Rice graduate, and um, Mohammed mm-hmm. Sharif, and of course, Roger Sherman was really key, and Marta mm-hmm. Novak. And, you know, I know the expertise of all the people on the faculty, and when we can commandeer a little of their time it's generally a very it's not very lucrative (laughs) but it's really Mm -hmm. inspirational and it's very meaningful collaborations that we've been able to establish we did for instance with roger and edwin chan who was the project architect in frank gary's office for disney concert hall and neil denari Mm -hmm. redesigned the entire neighborhood surrounding UCLA, kind of like the area around Rice, the little community that's... West University? Yeah, West University. It was kind of like that, I think, except for it's really Mm -hmm. jowl for us uh, with a kind of dead commercial zone and a few cultural Mm -hmm. institutions and a lot of warring landowners. And the three architects in City Lab came up with these different visions, one to propose that that whole neighborhood get rid of cars and be the first neighborhood of Los Angeles to ban cars. <laughs> that was radical. That caught a lot of the neighbors hair on fire. The proposal was to integrate all the cultural institutions, both within the campus and in this neighborhood together into a, a cultural arts and education district. That was more conventional, but also a kind of radical restructuring of the boundaries between the campus and the community. So it's a classic kind of city lab strategy in that we present two really provocative design alternatives by internationally recognized architects, really. Mm -hmm. And that causes conversation amongst the people who are actually the stakeholders, which then allows movement in a direction to start. That project ended up with a few things happening that were really interesting, you know, a sort of pop-up event uh, happened on the streets and all the vacant storefronts business improvement district picked up on some of the things we were suggesting and has really carried on a conversation that we started. You know, the new tenants that come in fit into models that people discuss, the parking that's already there was better integrated so you didn't have to park and repark every time it's kind of interesting how we've talked a lot about um, uh, the the length or longevity of a project and how long it takes to implement, but even also those, just what you're mentioning there, how some very small or short interventions, even on the, in the form of a pop-up shop or yeah. short-term leases for retail can still play their supporting role within a sort of larger initiative or larger scheme for an area Absolutely. in an urban setting like that. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, one thing we haven't spoken about at all is the commandeering of financial resources. We've been pretty good at pulling together the 
power and decision-making stakeholders to work together. Finding the financial resources to do some of these projects at something other than a kind of seat of the pants level has been one of the biggest challenges for me. You know, I think that's what stops a lot of centers like City Lab from happening is that it takes a real conviction <laughs> and dedication mm-hmm. to doing things that you're not really trained to do, like fundraise and grant write and piece together all kinds of things from very scarce resources to then convince mm-hmm. people to do work without a lot of remuneration. Well, I think that maybe just just that interchange right there probably proves the questions we've gone over today being written by current students, graduate students, <laughs> without without a thought in the world about finances. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And uh, stay that just, way. Just for another at least reason. Another year or two. <laughs> yes. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. You know. Another. Just one other reason why why um, an organization uh, like City Lab is such a um, or really any or any organization that that kind of does blend this theory and practice together is is pretty instrumental for students. So I think I'd like to wrap up here with a question uh, that can potentially give our listeners a glimpse into maybe more of your personal aesthetic preferences, mm-hmm. um, which I think we all know is often very difficult to draw out of our own professors. So are there uh, projects or practices that you find yourself sort of constantly referencing or constantly being drawn to time and again? Well, I'll tell you, I'm very much drawn to the Drawing Institute that Johnston Markley mm-hmm. just opened, and I'm dying to see it when I come to Houston. Yeah, It looks amazing. I don't refer to it much because I haven't been there, and I'm still of the mm-hmm. old school that, you know, I have to touch it to know it, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, sure, there are lots of projects that appeal to me, and they're almost all from what I would think of as innovative types of practice or projects Mm -hmm. that were pretty innovative. So like thinking about um, kind of opening new possible ways of thinking about architecture and urban space, I always go back to Chumis Park de la Villette and to uh, Bruce Mao and Rem Coolhouse's Downsview Park projects and also to FOA's Yokohama Terminal. All of those projects Mm -hmm. seem to me leveraged architectural program to make really interesting architectural, a kind of innovative architectural results. So those are fundamental. I'm also really interested in uh, small practices like um, the two Berlin practices I know, Raumlabor, uh, you know, which did an inflatable kitchen as a kind of community project and uh, something fantastic is this other really interesting small firm they did a project called the constellation house that kind of redefines the way we live privately and collectively that's really nice you know i think elementals quinta monroy housing is still a kind of touchstone aravena's project in chile Great. Those are, those yeah. are some, some <laughs> classics, but also a few that I, that I definitely need to, to look up now. It's been a, an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. And, um, and on too, behalf of, our, of the entire Tete-a-Tete team, we appreciate you sharing your time and knowledge. Um, is there, unless there's anything else you want to say sort of in conclusion. No, just look forward to meeting you. Same here. And I think the whole school, we're all excited to have you um, here for the lecture. Thanks. That's so nice. I'm really looking forward to coming back.
more information on Dana Cuff and her upcoming lecture at Rice University on March 4th, visit the latest news tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on SoundCloud to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski, and this has been Tete a Tete.